Welcome to the Indie Dev Life Podcast, a show about the ins and outs of independent software development. My name is Brian, and I am an independent developer. If you are an independent developer and you are looking for some servers to host your software on, check out Linode at linode.com. Use the link in the show notes to get a 60-day, $100 free credit. I use Linode. I've used them for many, many years. They host all of my servers, and I really enjoy them. Uh, They offer a really great service, whether you're looking for object hosting, virtual servers, or block storage. Uh, Linode has it all, and it's really affordable for indie devs. I use their Nanode service all the time. The smallest Linodes you can get are five bucks and one core. Uh, They're great for, like, sample projects or showing something off to a client or just doing some uh, light demos or anything like that. They're really, really good, highly recommended. You can also run things like Minecraft servers or websites or anything else. So if you're interested, give Linode a try at linode.com and use the link in the show notes to get a $100 60-day free credit. So lately I've been working on a yet unannounced uh, iOS app, and I've been trying to get the final touches on it. It is been taking me a few months to get everything where it is right now and lately I've really started doing the finishing touches like the final polish and this application is going through a few extra rounds of polish just because of the nature of the project and I'm also still waiting on other pieces of the project to move forward so I have a little bit of time on my hands and I've started to really work on the internals of the application As of right now, the features of it are largely done. But there are also just design considerations that I didn't think of when I first built the structure around the application and the first version of it. And now that I kind of have all the features built, I'm really going back through the application and trying to give it another round of polish, trying to flesh out all those edge cases in the data model or in the application logic or how how things flow through the application things that I didn't consider when I first started up. And in doing that, I have identified a few core problems and in the last couple days found some really, really cool solutions. And so I wanted to kind of talk through a couple of those things uh, because I thought they were really interesting as a comparison between different ecosystems. Specifically, I wanted to talk about how the technologies between different sectors are so different and so interesting. The specific issue that I ran into this time, is I had a bunch of code that was basically doing data model diffing. So new changes would come in uh, from the server or from the web or whatever, and I need to diff those changes with what's already on disk in the iOS app or what is already being displayed to the user, and then render those changes and save them. A pretty common problem. I've also run into a few issues with how data flows through the application. There's just some shortcomings with little things here and there, the data is not quite getting updated in certain places where it should. And I had gotten to a point where I either needed to re-implement the solution I had or spend some extra time digging trying to find a new way to do this. What's interesting about the iOS ecosystem and the macOS ecosystem as well is that a lot of the code that is written in those languages isn't open source. There's no place I can go to read what a good iOS app looks like or a good macOS app. Or at least not very many. On the website, when it comes from, like, you know, Python development or Ruby development or JavaScript development especially, you know, there's tons of examples. If you want to know how a website does a JavaScript animation, you just need to look at the source code. It's harder these days with all of the pre-compiled or the pre-bundled web front ends 
but still, it, it's usually fairly easy to find examples or open source projects or something like that. And for web projects, the backends are sometimes open source and the frameworks are usually open source. So it makes it really easy. If you want to find good Python code, you know, you can go read the Django documentation and then you can dive into the Django source code. Or if you want to learn how to make good APIs, there are projects out there that do that. On the iOS side, that's not really the case. There's not a lot of open source iOS apps. But I did go diving through one I knew about, which was NetNewsWire, which has been open source in its most recent iteration from basically day one. And I've occasionally glanced at it, but I've never really dove in too deep. I dove in deep enough at one point to realize that the way I was building apps and the way uh, the NetNewsWire project is built are two very different things, which isn't uncommon to find among you know projects that are starting from very different places. But unlike a lot of times when I go and look at somebody else's source code, uh, this time I had a very specific goal in mind. Like, I know NetNewsWire handles data diffing in an effective, foolproof way. So I was looking specifically for how they do that. And what I found was actually really cool. What I discovered is that NetNewsWire doesn't do this diffing. There's standard library code in uh, UIKit, which does this for you. So I learned that the work I was doing wasn't really necessary. And I was able to throw out a bunch of pieces of my own internal code and just replace it with a standard library. And that's always a good feeling to me when you get to just simplify something drastically because there's already something really good that does it for you. Coming from the Python world, the standard library pretty much has almost everything you need and there are a couple other libraries that do really complicated things, but if, if, if almost every basic use case of the language is covered in the standard library. On iOS, it's, the, it's largely the same way. The iOS standard library is enormous, you know, and I'm counting anything Apple ships as part of the standard library. So if you count like UIKit, I'm counting that. Even I know it doesn't work on Linux or it doesn't work on macOS, but it comes as part of the iOS tool chain. So I'm considering that like I didn't have to install anything. And UIKit and, and the Swift standard library are enormous. Uh, and there's so many things in those frameworks that you just don't know about. And if you didn't happen to watch the random WWDC session from five years ago where they introduced this concept, you'd never know. And if you did watch that session, then you may not have watched the session two years later when they changed everything that they did in that one session and, and made it better. And Apple's documentation is usually pretty decent, but then in some places just falls off a cliff in in terms of usability. Like there are there are some parts of UIKit and and Foundation and, and Swift that are very, very well documented, and some parts that are have not even a sentence to describe what they do. And so sometimes there's nowhere to point you in the right direction. Even if you're looking at the right related classes, there's nothing pointing you to that, that new set of functionality. So it's kind of hard at times to discover new features. There's a lot of blogs in the iOS world um, that, that post about new and different things, but you know if you're not tracking those specifically, you may not find it. So having sample projects or, you know, fully-fledged applications like NetNewsWire is super helpful because now as a developer, I can go, okay, well, they have this problem. How did they solve it? And even if it is, you know, a custom solution or something like that, then I can look at that and, and, and see, oh, that's how they did it. They did it in this one of three ways I was considering. That's the way they went with. And I can compare. I can say, like, that app is really good. NetNewsWire is really good and really stable and really robust. So obviously that solution must work and work well. It's just interesting how the two platforms are so different. You know, Swift is an open source language, and so is Python. Um, but the Python web community is so much more open about what it shares, 
Um, I think that comes from being on the web. It might also come from the scientific backing or the research uses that Python has. But I also think the, the, the use cases for it are the generalizable tools that people end up open sourcing are, they're more numerous, I guess. And in iOS, it's just, there's never been a, an overabundance of projects to look at and copy from. And it does make it hard because, I mean, obviously there are tons of open source iOS libraries out there. There's tons of them. Uh, but rarely are they like fully fledged applications or sample projects that that solve these problems in non-trivial ways. Like most of the Apple sample projects will just say, oh, you have a list of objects? We'll tack a list of, tack an array to your view controller. And while you can do that and treat it as your data source, it's not really ideal and it won't work for large applications anyway. And th there's very little beyond like, oh, here's a, a 200 line starter project and here's a really cool framework, but there isn't like a, I have a 10,000 line application that is open source that I would like to now show you while there are lots of things in other languages. And obviously, JavaScript is a whole other world because everything in the browser is open source to some degree. It's interesting because in, in iOS, uh, the applications that are usually built are often commercial applications. And, and most things probably written in Python are also commercial, but they're usually auxiliary to the thing that actually makes money. Like, for example, uh, you, there are very few fully-fledged applications that are like, you know, the entire business is open source. But there are like, okay, here is an example of a Django application, and it is open source from, you know, the very beginning all the way through. So you can look at a Django application, and you can say, okay, this may not be a commercial product, but it is a fully working, fully functional, fully fledged Django application. Whereas iOS, iOS apps are often the single piece, right? Um, they, there isn't like microservices in iOS. And so it makes it harder to open source the entire application or large parts of it because you're effectively open sourcing your entire business. Whereas on the web, we kind of get the benefit of microservices. We can all kind of look at each other's meaningless services and, and, and get a feel for how to build good stuff. And it makes it easier on the web to build on top of each other. Whereas on iOS, there's lots of great frameworks, like I said, but there's no applications you can be like, oh, I'm going to take this and then rip it apart and, and kind of you know, experiment from there. One of the other things that's often on my mind about the differences between the two platforms is kind of what I was saying earlier, where if I have a problem with how Django works or like Django REST framework is a, is a, is a tool I use a lot in my, my web apps. If I have a problem with it or like it doesn't work the way I expect or the documentation is lacking or I want to tweak it in some way that is different than it was intended um, and I want to know how I can, how I can tweak it, I can look at the source code. I can go to GitHub and I can pull up the source code for Django REST and I can say, oh, that's where that call happens. I want to mock that call out or I want to replace this call or I want to make sure I call that right out, my thing right after this one or whatever. And I can tweak the framework however I need it. Or I can say the documentation on this particular you know, section of the code is really lacking, but I can go figure out what it does because I can read the source code and, and go like, okay, if I pass in a string, it, oh, it gives me that, okay. On iOS you're often dealing with a black box. Uh, and it's really difficult at times. If the documentation doesn't tell you what the thing does, it's basically impossible to know what it does or how to, how to work with it. Uh, this came into a head, or is coming to a head, because my, my new app uses CloudKit, just like Huel does. But it uses a lot more of CloudKit than Huel did. And I've had a number of issues with testing CloudKit and making it, um, making it do what I want it to do. 
oftentimes the features and functionality I want are, are right there. They work just fine, but I don't know how to invoke them. And there's no way for me to inspect the source code to figure that out. And also it's really hard to test because the internal structure of things I don't really know. So for example, I wanted to do some testing around push notifications. And CloudKit sends push notifications for subscriptions. Uh, and I wanted to you know, write some code that would send push notifications to the simulator. Uh, and you can, you can do that with like, you know, a, a, a command line utility. But the problem is CloudKit has a very specific payload that it's expecting when you, when you create uh, CloudKit events from push notifications. And that format is not documented anywhere. So I can't really test it without creating actual CloudKit subscriptions. I was able to eventually find a project called OpenCloudKit, which um, I didn't dive into the exact specifics of what OpenCloudKit is or does, but in it, it, it actually spelled out the format for what the JSON payload is that CloudKit is expecting to create these notification events from. So that was really helpful because now I can look at this open source project and I can say, okay, what format does that expect? Create a, uh, a test that, res that returns that payload and then pass that into CloudKit in my actual application to, to, to see it work. You know, that would, that's the same strategy I would take in Python, but this case, I'm actually looking at a copy of the original, of the, of the source code, like a, a re-implementation it's as if I was only able to debug Windows by using Wine. Uh, it, it's, it's a very strange world to be in, but you know, sometimes looking at the source code is the best documentation you can find, especially when there is no other documentation. And so it's oftentimes like I will get stuck on iOS problems that I've never been stuck on in Python or in JavaScript or anywhere else because in those places I can go and look at the source code, whereas in iOS I, I have to basically guess what Apple means and then roll it out to a physical device using test flight and see if that's how it actually works. Especially now that there are so many differences between what happens when you do a build from Xcode and when you do a build from test flight or the app store. Uh, I had a bunch of issues over the, this week regarding push notifications and I still can't tell whether push notifications aren't being sent to my test devices or if it was like an intermittent issue with the test flight sandbox. I don't know because I don't have any insight into what CloudKit is actually doing and what APNS is actually doing. Uh, and there's no logs I can look at, really. There's the device logs, but they don't really tell me what CloudKit is doing. And so I'm left to kind of think on whether I should account for the fact that these things aren't happening uh, explicitly or if this is just like a temporary bug in CloudKit or something. Uh, the same when you get like random errors from, from iCloud, which happens occasionally, where you'll get like, oh, no, it just, it, the 500, it just crashed. I'm like, okay, was there something I was doing wrong or, and something I should fix? Or is it just like CloudKit was broken for a little while? I mean, you should account for both, obviously, in your code. But when you're doing testing and you're trying to figure out how to use a new API, getting that kind of result is really confusing because you don't know whether it was you or the service. And it'd be really nice if I could go look at the source code and say like, oh, no, when you pass it in that value, it actually does crash. That's me, not, not iCloud. Uh, which is often what I'll do with, with uh, web applications. That's it for today. I think it's just really interesting on the differences between the environments and the differences between what these environments incentivize, like on the web versus uh, a language used primarily for front-end development or for back-end development or for research or for you know, commercial iOS apps. It, it's interesting how the different ecosystems, you know, they're all just programming languages, but yet somehow they all have very different communities and different groups of people use them and, you know, they have different uh, ideals as a community and as a, 
uh, a language. And it's interesting to see how those things kind of play out and affect the community at large. I do talk about this a little bit more in my book, Going Indie, A Complete Guide to Becoming an Independent Software Developer. So if you're interested in furthering this discussion a little bit and thinking more about how you should use these differences to properly choose the right technology to start your business on, you can check that out at goingindie.tech. And if you are interested in renting some servers or starting up a new project, check out Linode at linode.com using the link in the show notes.